we need to understand what our ultimate goal is of decarbonization and realize in that process that we have to do quite a bit. We basically have on a capacity basis as much renewable power waiting in the wings to be built in the U.S.'s seven major independent service territories as we have in the grid right now, total. <laughs> like we, We're never going to get even a fraction of that done if we don't get better at it, if we don't control costs, if we don't speed up timelines. And you need to make human decisions and make organizational priorities and societal priorities around them. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities, and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon, it's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. Welcome back to Carbon Frontiers on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Nat Ballard, a senior contributor to Bloomberg NEF and venture partner at Voyager Ventures. He's recently collected his thoughts on decarbonization in a 140-page presentation deck, and he'll be sharing some of those thoughts with us today. Hello, Nat. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Dave, it's great to be back, and thanks for having me back. Yeah, well, I saw your recent presentation deck that you've put out on decarbonization, and I, I had to talk to you about it. So first off, congratulations and thank you for putting it together You've curated just a massive number of charts from a, a really wide variety of different sources in what's really an accessible and thought-provoking way. I, I read that you spent about three months on it, which is probably about since the last time you and I talked. Why did you choose this project to devote that amount of time to? Thanks. It was something that, that that's always sort of eating at me as an analyst of some vintage now is sort of trying to capture a master narrative about really the biggest thing in the world, which is uh, climate and our response to it. And the challenge there, as I think you well know, and most of your listeners will know, is that we are almost always domain bound, all of us. You know, you can be a, a, you're a world expert in one aspect of energy, which is in and of itself a multi-trillion dollar global economy, road transport fuel, or oil itself, or aviation, shipping, power generation, efficiency, whatever it is. But just outside of that domain, you may be sort of less acquainted with everything that's happening. So my attempt here is to use factual information across as many of these different domains as I can to try to capture a sense of where we are, which in and of itself is challenging enough at the moment. But that's driven not just by, I think, the sort of universal numbers, which would be climate numbers themselves, but also the economic numbers, the trade numbers, the corporate strategic decision-making, the capital flows and things like that across domains and ideally across geographies wherein they're available to sort of give us a sense of, of where we are. And in, in so capturing a sense of where we are, help us think about where we, we might be going. And I, and I thought this was in particularly important now because we've had an incredibly volatile, noisy, if you want to say, last few years. We will be 
in the same fashion that we look back and almost have to discount the global financial crisis in terms of the blips that it puts into every long-term curve, we have to do the same with COVID and we can now layer on top of that inflation and a great big war in Europe. So I was trying as much as possible to look into those things, but also to look through them. That's great. And one of the sections that I really enjoyed in the presentation deck, you talk about searching for what is new and for what is normal. And after the past few years, as you said, of COVID, of the invasion in Ukraine, of everything else that's going on, it's a little hard for us to tell what's the new normal and what was just transient and where are we at. So I wanted to start maybe with that question for you, you know, what's new and what's normal? What's new, I think, is that we have a dedicated sense that everything needs to happen. I use later on in the deck a sense of everything everywhere all at once, but that in order to tackle big climate challenges and their distinct intersections with trade, with war, and with inflation, we need to do everything. Like There's no longer really a section of the economy that can kind of take a punt on thinking about decarbonization if that's part of our goal as a society. So, and I think within that, there's a new sense of like really muscular policy approach. That's the IRA, but it's also a great number of activities happening in Europe, not just the US Inflation Reduction Act that any listener in the United States is going to be familiar with, but all sorts of things happening in Europe, all sorts of trade and policy implications in the rest of the world around what decarbonization might mean for industry, what it might mean for trade and for competitiveness. I think all of that is is new. I think also new were some sort of super spikes in short-term volatility that are a lot of the data that I have in the middle section and trying to sort of see whether or not we can ride through those. So that would be spikes in things like European gas and power prices, largely driven by the war in Ukraine, shipping, largely driven by the pandemic, but then other things that are sort of input staples for energy transition in particular, like lithium prices, silicon prices for solar, things like that. And then I think another normal is a re-engagement of very strong policy around everything. I mean, I've mentioned that before, but I kind of want to come back to it again, because we've had an interesting 10 years in which we had low interest rates. We had generally an okay economy, if not sort of performing to the level that it could have been globally. And out of that, we had actually kind of a pass on doing a lot of big global policy that was driven by countries. We had plenty of international policy, we had the Paris Agreement, we have things like that. But we didn't really have a lot happening at the activity of the nation state. And that's coming back in a really big way as rates are going up. And a final one, this is a sort of question about new versus normal, is what our sort of terminal rate expectation is and what money is going to cost. I ran these calculations a couple of years ago, but we had for like about 12 years or so, we had an almost zero interest rate environment for all the places where most of the build and energy transition was happening. And that meant that something like 75% of all of the assets that had been built for energy transition were taking place in a negative, in a nearly negative, negative, or near zero interest rate environment. And that's no longer true. Money is actually back to costing something. And that's a new slash normal with a question mark on it, but a very, very big one for us. Yeah. And when you look at things like the money flows and the investment dollars and how they're evolving, 
things like the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the other policy moves promise to be putting a lot more money in. But when you look at where the money's come from on the policy side, on the the private side in terms of investment, how has that been changing and what do you see happening there? Well, we had we had $1.1 trillion worth of investment in energy transition last year, which is up about 30% year on year, definitely a record. It was also incidentally about the same amount of investment in upstream oil and gas and also power generation that doesn't capture CO2 or doesn't have an emissions limitation on it. It's kind of a big milestone. I think that there's there's still the sense that these are good and investment worthy investment grade opportunities to get involved in decarbonization. And a good example of that I think is the fact that even in a rising interest rate and an inflationary environment like we are right now, the discount of wind and solar power to gas and coal-fired power is at its best ever. So even though those prices have ticked up slightly comparatively compared to the uh, the alternative of just coal or gas-fired power, they've never been more in the money. This is an interesting case where you have to look past the absolute decline in levelized cost and at the relative comparison to the alternative or competing option. You can see that as well in, in energy storage. So the prices for batteries ticked up about 7%, but they were at the storage system level, like installed batteries in the grid were up more than 20%. The thing about that is, is that almost none of the participants in the market say that they're interested in pulling back. And again, that's because comparatively, the value that they can drive into the market, even at an elevated price point, is still such that they're in the money as an asset developer. And so that's that's very important. That requires a bit of us looking relatively rather than absolutely, which I think for a very long time you've been able to do. Well, absolutely costs are coming down. They're coming down on an inflation-adjusted basis. They're coming down in an absolute sense in comparison to everything else. But now you have to look relatively to the benefit for the owner, the operator, the grid, the system. And as you said, we've seen over a trillion dollars flow into energy transition investment. The prices are aligning to make these economically sensible projects to do. And then when you look at where the rubber hits the road of the tangible results coming from this alignment of pricing and these investment dollars, where are we seeing the energy infrastructure build happening? And to what extent is it happening? So we've got $1.1 trillion, of which about 90% of it is money that's going into renewable energy, so power generation, and then is going into transportation. Very interesting to see that in a very short period of time, the amount of money invested in electrified transport is very nearly $500 billion a year. And it's actually always a close thing, and it will be for the next couple of years, as to which sector ends up being the marginal over 50% dollar of investment in energy transition between cars, trucks, buses, e-bikes, everything else, versus wind turbines, solar panels, geothermal, and all of that. That's where the bulk of the money is going. But what's interesting is that the fastest growth rates are happening in areas that you hear about that frankly sort of still live largely in the realm of potential. And it's like hydrogen. We had only a billion dollars worth of investment in hydrogen last year. So it's kind of hard to believe. Definitely the rhetorical investment in hydrogen, (laughs) I would say, would give you an indication that there's a lot more activity happening. But that's also tripled in a year, right? So low base, high growth rate. And there's also this sort of renewed interest in all kinds of things that are downstream of power generation in particular. So anything in energy and materials in particular, 
but also in things like electrification of heat and heat pump sales. I have a chart in there of how many heat pumps are now sold in the Nordic countries that if you listen to the sort of debates that, that remind me in many ways of the debates around induction stoves versus gas cooktops is sort of similar that like there's a debate that goes on rhetorically, but the the activity that's happening is definitely tilting strongly towards electrified options that will change the way we interact with our energy system. And I know much of the discussion of the energy transition tends to center on what's happening in the US and Europe. But how much of the story do you think we're missing if we don't discuss what's happening in China, broader Asia, and the developing world? Well, we're missing a huge part of it. So like one example, and this this is a sort of a, a an unfortunate and fairly quiet finding to my mind coming out of the pandemic, is per the EIA for the first time in years, the global population without reliable access to electricity rose. It increased. And that has not been on, that's not on trend, let's say, of the last decade. In the last decade or so, we've gone from what, about 1.2 billion people without access to electricity to only about 700 million. But last year, it ticked up again to 770 million. This is critical that obviously this gets addressed. And it's something that hand-wringing about the pandemic in the US and legitimate concerns about energy security in Europe right now and everywhere else in the world might obscure. So that's one thing. The other is that the scale of change, not just the rate of change, but the scale of change in other places is extremely important to note. As a bit of an aside here, the biggest challenge for doing a 140-page presentation is knowing when to basically put a cork in the funnel and stop putting new information into it. And so I published this on Sunday. Uh, We're now recording on Thursday. On Monday morning, China comes out with its data on its electricity (laughs) sector changes in 2022. But I can give you the numbers here. China added 210 terawatt hours of wind and solar generation. That's about as much as Vietnam generates in a year. Vietnam is a country of 90 million people or so. Total wind and solar generation in China is 1,190 terawatt hours, which is more than the total power generation of France and Germany combined. It's more than the total power generation of Japan or of Russia. And so if you were to chart this as a country in descending order, the largest electricity systems are China itself, and then the United States, and then India, and then China wind and solar. Like I don't think this is something that is very well appreciated elsewhere. Another element of that is that The global addition of wind and solar last year was between 600 and 700 terawatt hours. That is much more than has ever been added by natural gas in any one year. It is more than all but one year in coal, which was 2021 and the rebound from the pandemic. I kind of think we should leave that one out because that's sort of intensely affected by the margins in China. But it's also almost exactly double the fastest growth rate year on year for additions of power generation from nuclear in the middle of the 1980s. And I don't think people really apprehend this very well. The system is bigger every year. So these absolute numbers are sort of hard to appreciate, but they're eating, you know, more than a percent a year into total power gen, but also growing at a faster rate than anything has ever grown before. And I think that that's an extremely important thing to make a note of. The same applies in transportation. We have a hard time looking at peaks and we have a hard time if we're in this auto market or in Europe, understanding the rest of the world. But a good example here in in the auto market is that new passenger vehicle sales peaked almost six years ago. 
at about 85 million. They've since fallen during the pandemic, they were below 70 million. But in that entire time, EVs have been growing. So to put it another way, the only growth in global passenger vehicles is electric vehicles. And it's been that way for more than half a decade. And again, you can sort of lose that in the rhetorical mix of saying, well, yeah, there's you know only 10.6 million EVs sold last year. But they're also the only growth in this sector globally. There's also 30-something million small EVs sold every year. And this is like two-wheelers, mostly in Southeast Asia. This is a market that's almost 300 million total vehicles. It's an order of magnitude bigger than the total number of passenger EVs on the road. As you can tell, I'm always looking to contextualize, and I'm always looking to pull the sort of Western, North American, European frame into global context and into comparison with other places. And that context is so important. And I love the way you put in context the size of China's renewable grid, if it was a standalone grid relative to other countries. And I think I didn't quite count, but I think it would have been like the fourth or fifth largest in it the world. It would be the fourth largest in it would be the fourth largest in the world. Um another comparison is that it's almost enough there's almost enough electricity coming from renewables and wind and solar alone in China to meet the demand of every household in China which is about 1340 terawatt hours so put it another way though forget one more layer of context here <laughs> is that China's residential consumers are the fourth biggest power system in the world here's some other areas where you were providing context that I wanted to to talk with you about because I noticed in one section of your deck, you talk about the three ages of decarbonization. And I think you list them out as renewables, energy transition, and net zero. And I wanted to ask you, how do you think about those ages? And why do you find grouping them that way important? Like, How does it improve the way we think about decarbonization? I really appreciate this question because this is these are sort of deceptively simple slides. For those of you out there in podcast land listening, just picture three very unimpressive looking S-curves on top of each other. <laughs> that's all that the chart, that's all that the slide is. But it was because I was having I was having trouble negotiating essentially an answer to questions that I had been getting at the, you know, from boardrooms, from executives, be like, how big a deal is net zero? Or what am I going to do about it? And so I needed to sort of put it into a context, and in, as I phrase it, both evolution and revolution. And so I, I thought that like we, we basically, in the time that I've been doing this, you know, which conveniently aligns with pretty much the beginnings of the renewable energy build out in Europe and the US, is that we started with this very domain bounded little world, relatively speaking, of renewable energy that was like wind, solar, it was biofuels. In Europe, it was also CO2 markets. And it was done by a specialty team in an investment bank, like a special situations group. It was done by a small team of developers. It was done with bespoke contracts. And it really was going to only have impacts on the margin. It was also, mind you, back in those days, largely out of the money. We we're talking about things that absolutely needed support. They needed subsidy. They needed feed-in tariffs or portfolio standards or whatever it was in order to go. And then that sort of starts to start to lose its primacy in the last decade, the past decade, in which energy transition becomes a thing. And you'll still obviously hear about renewable energy and energy transition today. They haven't gone away. They're just sort of stacking on top of each other. 
And this is a little bit different because this is saying, well, I, I, I need to do more than just electricity or biofuels. I need to start looking at other elements of energy consumption and production. And if I'm a big company, I might be able to say, I'm going to pick a group in my company and we're going to put together a strategy to get this group to net zero. Maybe we're going to have net zero road transport emissions, or we're going to get all of our electricity from zero carbon sources. Within a bank, there's probably a team that does energy transition now. It's not special situations group. It's been devoted for this purpose. It's green finance, it's energy transition, something like that. Within a big company, you probably got a strategy group team, could be run by an executive vice president, could be reported to the chief strategy officer. It's something you probably get a briefing on at the board level, you know, but it's not necessarily baked in at that level. And it's also gone bigger than just power, obviously, to transport. And then the next one, which is our moment and looking forward for at least three decades, is net zero. And as I said, it's an evolution. It's the next thing to do, right? Okay, we've, we're going to transition. We have to have an end game for that transition. This is the end game. But it's so much more. First of all, it's not like you can just pick one part of your company and say, we're going to get this part to net zero emissions and then everything else is, will be fine. There's no out. You cannot talk your way out of it. Because it impacts every single aspect of the business, it must be baked in at the boardroom level. I can talk more about that later. You've seen I put a bunch of stuff about that in. But it's also an absolute imperative if you want to do it at a sort of an existential level for the entire executive leadership of a company. And it also means doing stuff that is very hard to do. I think I wouldn't call power generation and road transport solved from a decarbonization perspective, but they're solvable. Food, chemicals, heavy duty shipping, aviation, these things are not solved yet. Getting grids that can really operate 100% at 100% zero carbon you know, for decades at a time. This hasn't been solved yet. The capital that needs to flow into this hasn't been allocated yet. The regulatory compacts that need to govern all of this have not been built. The supply chains need to expand in some places, and also they need to contract in other places for this to happen. And everybody has to be on board with it. And it has to be viewed as a sort of a must-do. And also, while you might have been able to sort of like cross-fade from renewable to energy transition and energy transition to net zero, you can't get out of this one. <laughs> you got to do it. And you've got 30 years or so to get to that point, which leads me to one last sort of challenge within that, which is people-related, which is we're going to have a real ch a challenge here is that I would, I would argue, and I think most of your listeners would agree, that by the time you're the principal decision maker to enact a strategy like this, you are closer to retirement than you are to the beginning of your, your work life cycle. So in a sense, it's sort of easy to make these decisions, and then there are somebody else's to implement in the long run. That could happen here. You can make this decision, but it will be in your company for quite some time, for five more business cycles probably between now and, and the middle of the century. And if you committed to it and somebody else has to do it, they still have to do it. It's not something that they can just sort of be like, well, you know, that was the previous chief executive's idea. We're going to do net zero. We've now decided that we're not going to, we're going back to something else. So it's going to be a big challenge. And I wanted to sort of really spend a lot of time thinking about that heuristically and from a sort of competition cooperation level, uh, from an organizational level for companies as they think about what the next 25, 27 years is going to look like. Yeah, and I'd love to dig into that a little bit more deeply with you. You know, this is a series on the carbon frontiers, and you've certainly have laid out a lot of areas where we're we're at the edge of what needs to be done. 
And, you know, with the discussion around how net zero requires new approaches to how we do things, that sounds like the very definition of innovation. You know, what new approaches and innovations are you see coming from net zero? And maybe start with that boardroom. Like, how is it changing the way boards and the C-suite are engaging on these issues? To that point, I wish I could say that it is changing, but the evidence right now is so far, if it's changing at all, it is doing so very slowly. I quote some data from Tenzi Whelan, who's a professor at NYU, and she did a survey a couple of years back of the board of the Fortune 100, 1,188 board members. And she looked at all of their, across all of these board members, their capabilities. She is classifying them from an ESG perspective, but she does a nice job of atomizing the particular competencies and seeing what they're prepared for. So she said 29% of the board, of the collective board of the Fortune 100, has some ESG qualification. But the biggest category, 5% have some exposure to or competency in workplace diversity, which is an inaudible and important goal. 1.2% have any expertise in energy, and about two-tenths of a percent have any expertise in climate. It's just not there. Like There's really no other way to say that than that it is not there. It has not been made a priority. And I would say, you know, if you happen to be the person who was perceived as boardable, as like somebody who you can pull in to be part of the Fortune 100 board and had that expertise, you should probably be sitting on 50 boards, not two. But you start to run into the kind of limits of time and space. And there was an additional survey that I cite that also looked at how boards rank themselves on their their preparation for dealing with big challenges. And climate change ranked very low. Only about 56% of boards said that they felt confident in that. And to be honest, I think that that's partly boards talking themselves up. If I'm honest, I doubt that any board is that prepared for this. This is a personnel challenge. And I, and I end up in this discussion very, very often because it's it's really of deep interest to me, which is how do you negotiate the fact that you need people with either scientific background or industry exposure in young industries, in places where the science is dynamic, in a domain where you don't often have scientists on boards and you don't necessarily have a lot of entrepreneurs on boards. And you, you, you tend to have a, for very good reasons in many cases, a sort of professional boardroom cohort that does this globally. How are we going to change hearts and minds and focuses and prime directives, so to speak, without changing things at the board level? And listen, I do briefings for boards all the time. But there's only so much that, that I and my, and my own cohort of people who brief and speak and engage can do. I will be happy to do as much of this as I possibly can. But there's also a, a change-making element that needs to happen and that then needs to resonate throughout organizations at every level, not just in the, the special situations group, not just with a team that's set up to do something new. So certainly a lot of work left to do there. Maybe outside the boardroom. What other new approaches and innovations are you seeing coming out of net zero? Well, I mean, it's really exciting to see things like what the hybrid consortium is doing in the Nordics, which is to make steel in a zero carbon way. Like this is science fiction stuff, even like 10 years ago. And when I started in, in the, in the mid two thousands doing this work, if you told me that somebody's doing this, I'd be like, that's absolutely outlandish. Like that's incredibly exciting to see things like that happen. Any efforts to do decarbonization of marine shipping are really exciting. There are some consortia that are doing that based in Singapore, like the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization. 
I'm personally very excited by and observing very closely what's happening in aviation. I think we'll end up more electrified than most people expect today, but the the sweet spots, at least at the moment, may not make a massive dent in total overall consumption of fuel. Like I have the feeling that we will be taking puddle jumper flights that are electric definitely within a decade. Um, and in fact, we're already seeing trials of that. You can see those flights um, in trial fashion happening in Vancouver Harbor, where Harbor Air has been flying in a modified electric plane. There's a lot of startup activity on electric aviation. And it's been interesting to watch how that has moved from largely a kind of personal air taxi, sort of personal mobility framework into, you know, single aisle replacing turboprop kind of aviation. And we'll see how far that can go. Are we going to have the equivalent of an A380 that is flying on battery power? Don't know. That definitely feels more like a place where, where some sort of zero carbon liquid fuel is probably going to be most welcome. But it also starts to highlight the, you know, the, the sort of pure energetic challenges around incumbency and why they exist to begin with, which is like, look, if we could, if we could invent a carbon neutral oil, we would be in a great spot. <laughs> Like if, if it was possible to invent this energy dense, very useful goo in, <laughs> in in a way in the lab and produce it in a billion tons a year that we that we need, that would be tremendous. The challenge is that we we can't really do that yet, and so we're sort of coming up with solutions that are around them. But I think also what interests me is then is therefore when we we come up with things that are not just alternative but are also better in some other vector. You know, they're also an improvement from a local air quality perspective. They have less impact on they have less impact on land. They have less noise in the city or things of that nature. And and in fact, it's something I wrote about for my piece that just published, you know, a big push for rural electrification in the early 20th century in the United States was not just about getting the grid to people, but about giving people something that was better. And I had to do a little bit of history, history work here for my readers. To point out that there was plenty of energy on a farm in Mississippi, in Arkansas, in Georgia in the 1930s, but it was oats and hay, and it was also kerosene, and it was gasoline, and it was gasoline that might be powering a single motor on your property, or a single engine rather, that then provided motive power to all kinds of things, including your washing machine. So we, we have to think too about frameworks of coming up with things that are better. And I'm very curious to see how that plays in particular in in hedonic contexts. So food would be a good example. Um, you know, I think the, the bloom is off the rose at the moment, at least from a market perspective on alternative proteins. But the science is definitely there to in a couple of years have us in places where we may have better alternatives for any number of reasons than what we have in our incumbent system now. And you bring up such a great point that so much of energy that I think people who aren't close to it miss out on is how much of it's driven by logistics. It's about oh, getting absolutely. the energy in the right form at the right place. And so, yeah, if we could replace oil with something else and we've got the logistics, that's perfect. That's right. And I'll give you one thing on that, like to, to our, to our sort of circle back on our earlier bit about hydrogen is that, you know, like it, what fascinates me about hydrogen, you have a lot of people talking about it, but it's not, it's not great in some ways. So it has a very, very good gravimetric energy density. That's by weight, but by volume, it has a very poor density. You just can't compress it that much. So a good example would be like, if you wanted to fill, if you wanted to have the equivalent energy of one of today's LNG tankers in a hydrogen tanker, it needs to be two and a half times bigger. 
And there's no getting around that. Like there's, there, there's like no way you can science your way out of that. Okay. Like it just has to be that way. <laughs> it's a reason that we fire rockets with hydrogen, right? Because hydrogen is light and you can put a big, very lightweight tank of hydrogen in a rocket. Great. But like you, you can't get your way around that in a tanker. You won't. And so I think we're going to, we're going to be talking intensely in the next few years about where it is that hydrogen goes and for what purposes, right? It's also, frankly, not great for existing pipelines because it tends to embrittle them. It tends to cause them to break apart. But it's where, where you, you sort of have to come back to like, what's the actual science here? You know, what's the physics? What's the logistics is super, super important. We have a world that's optimized around what we've been doing, right? We optimized it for what we wanted, and then we optimized around what it is. And changing those is challenging. It can be done but it requires a very holistic approach. And you've touched on a number of the opportunities and challenges out there, but maybe as we try to start summing things up in a way, as you look out over the next, you know, however long a period of time, what are the opportunities and challenges you're going to want to keep your eye on, you're going to be most focused on? So one of, one of the things that I found myself sort of surprisingly drawn to it, towards the tail end of, of this project and wrapping it up was the sort of adaptive reuse of what we already have. You know, we tend to approach these things as like, we're going to need to build X amount of new stuff, which, which we are. <laughs> no way around that. But where and how are we going to build that I think is extremely important. We've decommissioned hundreds of energy sites in the United States in the last 20 years, purely as a function of changing economics in power. And the fact that a lot of these things were very old, like we were decommissioning projects that were built before you and I were born for the most part. And our sort of existing mentality around these for good reason is that they are a liability. I have an old power plant site. It has had heavy metals pollution spills. It has had coal on site. It has tanks that need to be cleaned up and remediated. And it has a very high negative net present value, or very, very, very low negative, whatever, a very significant negative present value. But what if we were to view that instead as an asset for building something new? Let's put a gigawatt hour battery into the site of an old coal plant where we already have all of the transmission infrastructure that we need to take that power. We don't need to plan and permit anything new. Let's put a, a modular nuclear reactor into that site. Let's turn it into something inbound instead of outbound. We've seen data centers built on old Tennessee Valley Authority coal plants, in fact. So one of them is just a sort of like better adaptive reuse of all that we have. That would apply as well, I think, to techniques. Um, I, did a, I did a slide that was a fun exercise in, in data mining on all the drilling activity in Texas over the last couple of decades. Thank you, Texas Railroad Commission, for making it available. That's not just wells that you could reuse. You could you use them as a gravity well for energy storage. I've actually seen designs to, to propose that. You could do some geothermal possibly with it if, you're, if you know what you're doing. But also think about all the expertise that's there, all the human capital that is in that capability and all the property plant and equipment that does that. And that is, I think, extremely exciting is talking about sort of not just adaptive reuse, but sort of intelligent repurposing of what we have today to get us to the future. Like that's something I'm really excited about. And there's a related, which is we do have to get our act together and particularly in the United States around some sort of key unlocks. We do need to be faster about planning and permitting. We need to 
understand what our ultimate goal is of decarbonization and realize in that process that we have to do quite a bit. We basically have on a capacity basis as much renewable power waiting in the wings to be built in the U.S.'s seven major independent service territories as we have in the grid right now, total. <laughs> like we, we, We're never going to get even a fraction of that done if we don't get better at it, if we don't control costs, if we don't speed up timelines. And these are not technical things. Like this isn't science. You don't need to get like a consortium of physicists together to make this happen. You need to make human decisions and make organizational priorities and societal priorities around them. Well, I wanted to thank you, Nat, for taking us along this carbon frontier journey and putting all the work in that you have to make it such a, a wonderful conversation. Before I let you go, though, when I was flipping through your deck, I know you introduced me to a new word. That word is hyperobject which when I read it made me think that this carbon frontier is a truly vast one. Can you describe what you mean by a hyperobject and how it should shape how we think about both climate change and the movement towards net zero? Absolutely. So first of all, full credit where it's due. This is from a fantastic book by the same name, by Timothy Morton. The book is called Hyperobjects, just to reiterate. And he describes a hyperobject as massively distributed in time and space in relation to humans. So Massively distributed in time and space in relation to humans is a perfect way to describe climate change because it's obviously very, very huge. And it's also very, very distributed. And it exists with both a spatial and a temporal element to it. It exists over time, over centuries, and it exists everywhere. And I think that this is an extremely elegant way of thinking about the challenge. What I wanted to add to it is that the response is also going to be the same. It's certainly going to be massively distributed. A lot of that is the nature of the distributed technologies that I think will be in play for them. It's also going to take a lot of time. <laughs> it's going to take decades if we want to get to net zero. And in relation to humans, it's very, very big. But I'm hoping that it's a helpful framing. The only, the only thing that can challenge one hyperobject is another. And I hope that it's also a bit aspirational too for the people who are interested in making that change is that like anything you do can plug into that massive temporal and spatial distribution. And only by doing these things at mass scale in time and space are we going to affect any real change. Thanks again to Nat Bullard, senior contributor to Bloomberg NEF and venture partner at Voyager Ventures. Join us next week with our guest Svenja Tell, Director of Project Origination and Technology at Base Carbon. We hope you'll join us. This episode has been brought to you in part by Base Carbon. The trading of carbon credits can help companies and the world meet ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But how do we judge the quality of these projects? And how can we ensure that our investments are creating real value? At Base Carbon, we're focused on financing and facilitating the transition to net zero through trusted and transparent partners. It's time to focus on what's important. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. 
please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, Avax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.